Autumn greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Finding Lecture Series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Thank you for joining us tonight for our very first talk of the fall semester. Uh, we're honored to have with us Professor uh, Charles Liu uh, to present on his recently published book, The Cosmos Explained, A History of the Universe from Its Beginning to Today and Beyond. Uh, Professor Charles Liu is Professor of Astrophysics at the College of Staten Island CUNY and an associate with the Hayden Planetarium and the Department of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Uh, Dr. Liu is a professor, a regular co-host on the famous Star Talk podcast and received the 2001 American Institute of Physics Science Writing Award for his book, One Universe at Home in the Cosmos. Please welcome Professor Charles Liu. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, everybody, for being here today. It is really a pleasure to be launching this autumn's uh, fun times with AAARI. You guys are great, and I'm really glad to be able to share this information with you. I hope you guys all enjoyed the harvest moon that happened recently. Uh, there's lots of neat astronomical stuff happening all this time. As you all know, uh, the next new moon is Rosh Hashanah, and that's coming up in just a few days. But interestingly, on that same day, Jupiter will be in opposition. So actually, in the solar system, we've got the sun, the moon, Earth, and Jupiter all in a straight line. And Jupiter will be the closest it's been in about 60 or 70 years. So have a good time. Enjoy that conversation. Today, we're talking a little bit larger scale, talking about the entire history of the whole universe. And I hope that we, in the next 30 or 40 minutes or so, we can have a lot of fun talking about this and giving you a sense of all the stuff that we know, at least very, very shallowly, about how the history of the universe has unfolded from the Big Bang to the present day and into the future. What we should think about is what importance history has for us all. Why do we even care about things? Well, think about we are creatures of time, right? The beginning of something, the past, the present, the future, the end. This story is what drives us to ask questions. We're bound by the limits of before and after. We always want to hear the start and the finish and everything in between. We're creatures of curiosity. We're endlessly asking questions about every part of our story. And that's what history is, searching for answers. We pause for a moment when we get a satisfactory explanation, and then we ask new questions, right? We always are trying to find out the story. What's the story? To know the story, to want to know the story, and to read to know the reasons behind it is the key, the core of really the ultimate story, right? It's the story of everything that has existed, exists today, and will exist in the future. That's the universe. That's the cosmos. And that's the history. So I'm going to use uh, spreads from the book to sort of guide us in this conversation for the next uh, 30 or 40 minutes or so talking about the history of the universe. And we'll start with the first quadrillionth of a quadrillionth of a second of the history of the universe. Now, a quadrillion is uh, one with 15 zeros after it. So I'm talking about one uh, zero point and then 29 zeros and then a one at the end of it of a second after the beginning of the universe. 
Now, this is kind of an interesting point that I want to say, right? The time uh, of the Big Bang. Now, we do know that the Big Bang happened in the sense that the universe was once very, very small, very, very hot, and very, very dense. And everything that has come since has come from within that small, tiny space that has since expanded out to where we are today. So there is no like location where the universe actually started, the Big Bang. Like, where did the Big Bang happen? The answer is the Big Bang is all around us. We are actually in the space from which the Big Bang occurred. Right now, that's a little bit confusing, but that's okay. You know, it's part of the complexity of how our universe has been created. If it were complex, it'd be a bummer because we'd want the universe to be like complicated and interesting. Right now, what happened exactly at the very, very beginning at, at time equals zero, like you know, zero point zero 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 period, without a one anywhere in there at the beginning, that we still don't know. There's a lot of history about. Uh, the universe, the ticking of time, the cosmic structure that still has a lot of scientific speculation involved. People are still doing research, both theoretically and observationally, about the very, very earliest parts of the universe. So it's really hard to say what caused at exactly zero what was going on. But we usually start at about 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the Big Bang. That would be zero point and then 42 zeros and then a third of uh, uh, one at the 43rd spot, right? 10 to the minus 42, 10 to the minus 43 second after the Big Bang. We know at that point, the universe's laws, the laws of nature as we understand them today, the things that spawn physics, uh, the things that work as we understand them today, that's about the time when it happened. And so at that point, we can call that the birth of the universe or the time when we start really able to being able to study things scientifically all right that's uh, named after max planck uh, who first proposed this cosmic time unit and we call it the planck time in his honor about 10 to the minus 43 second uh, that's a very very small amount of time uh, don't feel like you have to read the text please uh, just use that uh, these spreads as a way to sort of guide the story of the book uh, please don't feel like you should read the text in there, but there is text in there. And so you're welcome to glance at that if you want to give you a sense of the kinds of things we're talking about. So if we're talking about a moment before which there is no laws of physics that we're familiar with that's working, and then there's a moment, and then the laws of physics start working after that, right? The stuff of the universe starts getting produced at that point. Almost immediately after that 10 to the minus 43 second after the Big Bang, right, the universe starts to get larger and starts to cool down. The dynamics of that, they're very complicated pieces of it that are still being worked out theoretically and observationally. But within a few fractions of a second, particles are starting to form. Now, the exchange between matter and energy is actually a bit complex. It turns out that folks like Albert Einstein and Max Planck and other folk scientists uh, figured out about a hundred years ago that matter and energy are interchangeable, that you can change one to another, just as simply as you can change, say, a US dollar into Japanese yen. There's an exchange rate, and there's an exchange mechanism. There are machines that can give you one for the other. 
That's the kind of thing that happens in the universe. And so when the universe, which was filled with energy, because it was so hot and so small and so dense that particles could not exist, that changes rapidly. As the universe expands, the energy rushes out to fill that space, that vacuum. And so the temperature starts cooling down. Within a few fractions of a second, the first massive particles can form. It's kind of like cooling out. It's kind of, if you have a, a fog uh, of lots and lots of stuff here on Earth, uh, eventually raindrops can condense out of them. It's that kind of thing. The conditions have to be just right. The temperature has to be low, whatever conditions in the medium of space at that time. But slowly and surely, that stuff of the universe, those particles get produced. We have subatomic particles at first, and then they start forming <clears throat> Things that you might recognize, you've heard of before, things like electrons, things like quarks, things like gluons. Uh, some of the particles have mass. Some of the particles do not. Uh, the photon, which is a unit of light, has no mass, but it is a particle indeed. And so slowly but surely, all these things start combining in well-described ways, following the laws of physics, so that we wind up eventually uh, with things like protons things like neutrons, and then the neutrons come together to form with protons, helium nuclei, deuterium nuclei, other atomic nuclei, the matter that we understand today as atoms and molecules, the nuclear cores of those things are formed surprisingly within just 10 minutes after the Big Bang has occurred. Okay, remember, we were originally counting at 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the Big Bang. And now within 10 minutes, stuff is there. A lot of stuff. Things are ready to go to the next level, but they haven't yet because the universe is still too hot, right? And gravity, which today, of course, governs the motions of the planets and the stars and the galaxies far more than, say, the energy of heat and light and so forth governs it. Um, that needs to establish itself, the structure of the universe, which today we can see as streams of matter, galaxies or clusters of galaxies, trillions upon trillions of stars spread out through the universe in a particular set pattern. That has to be established. And over a very short time, again, over a period of minutes to months, to years, that starts imprinting itself into the universe until about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, right? From zero, almost zero, to 10 minutes, to about 300,000 years. That's when the large-scale structure of the universe gets imprinted basically the way that we see it today, all right? And uh, the cosmic microwave background is our evidence that shows that that imprinting has occurred by 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Now, these timings are still quite approximate, right? We could be off by thousands of years when it comes to these exact times. We talk about the large-scale structure, the universe establishing and things like that. But we are counting from a time that no one was there to set a stopwatch. There comes a time later in the history of the universe when indeed we can start counting time from a reference point of today, not from some time in the past, from we're not really certain when it was. Nevertheless, 
we can get pretty close to the actual number. All right. So today we believe that the universe is almost exactly 13.8 billion years old, plus or minus about a hundred million years old. So again, 13.7 plus or minus 0.1 billion years. That's how long the universe has been around since the Big Bang, give or take, right? Now that seems like a lot, plus or minus 100 year, million years. That is a lot. But remember that in terms, in terms of a percentage of the actual history of the universe, that's a better than 1% accuracy, right? Do you know how old your friends are? to within 1% accuracy, right? For a person that's, say, 50 years old, 1% accuracy is six months. A lot of us don't even know many of our friends' ages to that level of accuracy. So our precision is pretty good. There's still a lot to learn, but we're doing it. And as we get there, slowly but surely, we're starting to see that at some point, also right around 380,000 years after the Big Bang occurs, space winds up being large enough, being expansive enough and cool enough that as that large-scale structure imprints into space and time, also energy can now shine through the universe. It's no longer pulled or tagged that the coupling of matter and energy gets decoupled. And now we can have light streaming through the universe. The universe still, unfortunately, is quite cloudy. All right. Light can travel, but it keeps hitting matter. Imagine that light now can travel, but every time it goes a certain distance, it hits a molecule or something or hits a hydrogen atom, something like that, and it will cause it to stop or to scatter. So you've seen this fog out in the universe. So you have to spend time. It takes another hundred million, a few hundred million, half a billion years, something like that. That many years it takes for that fog to clear. And the way it clears is that you form stars and black holes and galaxies. The modern technology that's up in space and on the ground right now, those observations made, for example, with the James Webb Space Telescope that made so much news back in the summertime, that material is basically stuff that we can see all the way back to those first galaxies, right? First agglomerations of matter that are shining light, that are blasting the sort of fog away with all of the radiation that it's generating. These first galaxies contain the first stars and the first black holes that were formed back then. Uh, it is amazing to think, uh, in this picture I'll show you here, that this blob of reddish stuff, which we cannot make out for the life of us, right? We can do the best we can to figure out what shape that is, but that's very, very fuzzy. Uh, but that little blob in there, which we zoom into, has actually uh, formed probably during that early, early time in the history of the universe, which is kind of cool, right? And all those other bright points of light, some of them elliptical looking, some of them spiral looking, cigar shaped, those things are the, uh, I guess, I call them descendants, I suppose, of those first galaxies as they come together. And now today we live in such a galaxy ourselves. These galaxies, agglomerations of matter and energy and black hole stars, gas, 
planets, those kinds of things. Galaxies are to the universe what, say, cells are to the human body, right? There are so many of them, and they come in many different shapes and sizes, and they have different histories. They seem to, some form a lot of stars, some form very few stars, some are red, some are blue, some are this shape, some are that shape, some are blobs, and some are very well-defined structures. But when we want to study the universe today, just as, say, if a, a, a medical doctor wanted to study uh, the aging process of the human body, uh, we would study cells, right? We would choose some cells in the human body, this kind or that kind, to see how they age or how they affect the aging process of the human body. By the same token, we astronomers study galaxies and their components, the stars, to understand how the universe has aged over cosmic time. And we can say right now with some confidence that our galaxy, the Milky Way, right, was formed about 4 billion years after the Big Bang, okay, roughly 10 billion years ago. This is an interesting question about exactly what time the Big Bang, uh, after the Big Bang, that the Milky Way formed. Because the Milky Way formed not like, boom, it was not born, and then now it's born. It has developed over a long period of time, right? Small pieces of matter, which formed sort of proto-galaxies, bunches of stars or pieces of gas, matter, black holes, things like that, that have come together, they will fall together to form a larger galaxy. And meanwhile, that larger galaxy, as you can see here uh, in this artist's conception, it forms its own structure, right? Now, these spirals, we have observed them, but we, uh, that is Earth, we human beings, etc., are roughly in the position as marked by this little yellow circle and the white arrow, my cursor over here, in this galaxy. That's kind of where it is if the Milky Way galaxy is shaped like this. So <coughs> we are at a little bit of a disadvantage. We're like a, a guppy in a huge goldfish bowl trying to figure out the shape and the structure of the water around us. <coughs> so that's a challenge that we still have to face. Uh, these shapes, these spirals, the galaxy, the sort of yellowish bar of stars we find in the middle of our Milky Way, these all are based on our observations from the interior of our galaxy, looking out into the galaxy. So there's still some things that we're trying to figure out. And unfortunately, we can't exactly fly a drone up uh, hundreds of thousands of light years to um, take a look at an aerial view of our galaxy. One of the things that we do know, though, is that our galaxy is very thin. You see this galaxy here, right? This is a big spiral from one side of this glowing uh, bluish stuff to the other side where the stars are and the gas is glowing and being lit up by the starlight uh, of our uh, many stars in the Milky Way galaxy, the hundreds of billions of stars, really. That distance across the page there is about 600,000 trillion miles. Um, uh, astronomers would call that roughly 30 kiloparsecs. But 600,000 trillion miles is no small distance, right? In fact, it takes light more than 100,000 years to cross that, which means that if I have a, a star over here that explodes on the left side of this picture, uh, it won't even be known on the right side of the picture that that star exploded for a 
thousand centuries. That's a long time. This is the kind of size and scale of the universe in which we live. It's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, the world is pretty big compared to us human beings. The solar system is pretty big compared to our Earth. But you're thinking about the size of the galaxy. At this point, billions of years after the Big Bang, the universe is very, very large, uh, as opposed to back then when it was very, very small. And the first particles and the first bits of matter were just starting to condense from the energy of the Big Bang itself. This is the point then, 4.6 billion years ago, that we can now measure time from the present day backwards, right? Up to this point in the history of the universe, we can only think forward from the years after the Big Bang. But now, at the 4.6 billion year mark, something happens. Our solar system forms. The sun forms and then eventually our earth forms around it. And here is an actual solid piece of evidence that we can start using in order to figure out the age of things. Because if you've got a stun, if you've got a star, if you've got some bits of material left over from the formation of the sun, the stuff that forms the solar system, basically. If we can get some of that material, then we can use the properties of that material itself. Most importantly, the radioactive properties of these particles, the formed atoms and molecules and, and things like that, uh, that have formed asteroids or grains of diamond dust or entire planets. That material now can be dated. It can be age measured. We can know how old they are. So starting from about the 4.6 billion year mark from the past, we can now say things happened at a certain date in the past and we can measure to our present time. So that changes the whole game of talking about the history of the universe, right? And birth of the sun and the solar system lays the groundwork for the birth and the formation of the earth and the moon where we live today, right? Now, this is actually a, a uh, artist's conception of Mars. Okay? What the surface of Mars looked like, we're pretty good at that. We can take pictures of that. This is the sky crane and the helicopter that landed a Mars probe down onto the surface of Mars about a year ago. All right. So the Perseverance rover and on it, there was a little uh, Ingenuity helicopter uh, landed about a year, year and a half ago, and it created a sensation still is today as it crawls along slowly but surely the Martian surface. We are trying to figure out the birth of the Earth and the Moon, but by looking at Mars and other planets and the Moon itself, we are learning about our whole aging process. How did we get created? Where are we? What have we come to? Where are we now? And so the birth of the Earth and the Moon has been a very interesting topic because we live here. Right now, the history of the universe, you might say, well, why would I care about the history of the Earth and the moon? Right. This, again, uh, historians can explain this much better than me, but this matters to us. Right. You are talking about the past. You take a cone of time from big and then you zoom into us where we are today and then you zoom out again into the future to figure out what the uh, future is. But history is the study of what has happened before, 
and how it happened and why it happened and things like that, history of the earth is very important. We are worthy of the study of the history of ourselves and our planet and where we've come from. And so this book, when we talked about the history of the universe, focuses a bit of time on us as humans and of the other life here on earth. At the moment, we only have one place where we know that life evolved from its environment into things that today can actually examine itself, right? In a sense, we are the product of the universe looking at the universe. So uh, the RNA, the DNA, the microorganisms that led to the macroorganisms that led to who we are today, right? It's a path that has been built up purely by natural processes, things that can happen without any kind of uh, magic, right? Uh, actually being able to come from the universe as it exists, following the laws of nature. There's still a lot of mysteries to it. Doesn't mean it's not magical in the sense of, wow, that's so cool. But you don't need to use some sort of supernatural explanation to see how life appeared on Earth. Now, the key idea for that to happen, right, as most of you know, is the idea of evolution by natural selection. Primitive microscopic life. I put this uh, particular spread here because, first of all, I love looking at little microorganisms. They're cool. But these are not actually primitive. Right? The first most primitive microscopic life is way simpler than these things right here. Look at these guys. They may be little, but they're neat. They've got all kinds of structure. They have organelles in them. They have vacuoles. Some of them have cilia. This has a flagellum. Uh, there's all kinds of neat stuff, even in the micro world, right? So the evolution of life isn't necessarily from, say, you know, lame, uh, uh, primitive to advanced and superior. It's a matter of change, right? And this is something that Charles Darwin really understood when he was saying it, but maybe over the years, we really haven't been able to communicate that to everybody quite as clearly. Evolution by natural selection, indeed, evolution from the cosmic point of view, that is the change of things has gone forward, is not necessarily an improvement every single time. It's just a change. So the concept of evolution, in this case on Earth, evolution by natural selection, mirrors a cosmic way of telling time as a function of how things change over time. Not necessarily get better or worse, but change. And so in that sense, these strings of microorganism, viral type things, to these yellowish slime molds that actually left to their own devices can mimic uh, city subway systems in their networks, to things like giraffes, you know, which have these big long necks. I mean, that's pretty amazing stuff. All of that process, it takes time, it takes an influx of energy, but indeed it is a change brought about given the conditions in which those organisms or uh, on a larger scale, those planets or those stars or those galaxies survive, right? In the same sense that there's evolution of life on Earth, there's planetary evolution, stellar evolution, galaxy evolution, and even cosmic evolution as the universe changes. Everything goes from young to old. Everything changes from this to that. And that's a, 
a theme, I think, that we should all remember about the universe. I mean, part of the, the impetus of telling the history of the universe is to know how things have changed over time. So the Earth has gone through both interesting times and uninteresting times. There's a period uh, called the Boring Billion. Ask a biologist about that sometime. What is the Boring Billion? So, uh, we're waiting for things to happen, right? In the same way that the universe, it takes billions of years before the first galaxies form. What is it, the universe doing during that time? Now, the Earth is a complicated system too, right? Uh, in many ways, you can ask yourself, how does the Earth as a system differ? from humans as a system. Uh, we do have different chemical processes and physical processes, but in the same way that we as humans or as life on earth, uh, as we think about it, the DNA based stuff, uh, typically you're born, you typically grow and grow old, you typically reproduce and you typically die. This is what happens in life, right? And each individual organism may not go through all those stages, but species or groups will all follow that general pattern. Those are some of the things that everything alive does. Well, when we're looking for the cosmic point of view, the Earth, too, was born about 4.56 billion years ago. It has grown old, right? Has it reproduced? I don't know. It's hard for us to say, well, it did not really, you know, have a baby the way that we did. But, you know. The moon was formed in part from the stuff inside the earth. There was a huge collision, uh, we think, billions of years ago that caused the stuff of the moon to coagulate into a body of its own outside of earth's own body. Is that reproduction? Hmm, hard to say. Uh, and about dying, will the earth die? I'll have to tell you about that in a little bit. Hold on. We humans, it's worth thinking about it, right? We're the ones that are telling this history of the universe. So what is the history of humans? We spend some time here talking about that. Humans have done a whole lot. Uh, it's very interesting. We have had huge population booms. We've had huge extinction, near extinction events for us. And we have spread out. In the past, say, 50 to 100,000 years, uh, humans have uh, also evolved, even not even talking about like the primitive hominids of uh, things like uh, uh, Homo habilis or Homo erectus or Australopithecus, these earlier forms of humanity, even within the past uh, 50 to 100,000 years, uh, we coexisted with the Neanderthals. Uh, there's the Cro-Magnon, uh, there's Homo floresiensis, a, a subgroup of humans that were discovered maybe um, just a few years ago that lived in Indonesia, maybe 10 to 15,000 years ago. Humans have evolved too. We have changed a lot over time. And of course, uh, this little picture of the reconstruction of Lucy, uh, a, a proto-human that was discovered in East Africa uh, some years ago. Uh, really gives us a sense of the kinds of changes that we humans have gone through also, right? Uh, and so we should always remember that just as things don't necessarily improve every time they evolve, they just change, so too is the human history and human evolution. We're not necessarily better than the past. We're just different. 
And we adapted to these kinds of things. It's kind of a neat thing to think about from a historical point of view. Now, uh, as uh, I am not a trained anthropologist or archaeologist, I won't talk too much about those aspects of things, uh, except to just a touch upon the fact that this is a part of the history of humanity, too. Right. Was we built uh, this science, this technology, this society that has built us up to where we are today, how I can have the pleasure of talking with you all uh, by actually not being there with you at all, but actually talking through this electronics, this technology and so forth. But this has been around for a long, long time. Science, especially astronomy, has been crucial in the development of that technology, the development of the science, calendars, keeping time, uh, GPS systems today, which have to take advantage not only of uh, satellite technology, you know, rocket science and so forth, uh, but also uh, the general theory of relativity so we can correct our clocks properly, quantum mechanics so that the electronics will do what we think they do uh, or we hope that they do. All these different pieces of science have led us to where we are today. It's really kind of interesting. Uh, and if we think about our society today and our civilization and how we developed, right, we are really very unusual. Uh, we speak. We have complex language. Perhaps that was the thing that caused us to change and adapt to our environment so rapidly compared to most other animal species. But, you know, how did we begin to use language? How did we develop these rules? It's really weird how we wound up this way, right? We are by no means the only communal creatures, uh, huge uh, termites, uh, ants. Uh, these colonies can number much more than humans can in any given city or town or something like that, honeybees. And yet somehow we as individuals can have a greater effect on our groups that wasn't originally put in by our genetics or our chemical receptors or our brains or things like that. There's a lot of variation, and that's really kind of really neat. Uh, if you think about it uh, and translate that into the history of the universe, there is all that cool stuff too. A lot of interesting change. And of course, we lead to space exploration. On July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, followed shortly by Buzz Aldrin, while Michael Collins was out in space orbiting. Uh, first time human beings in their protective technological suits had set foot on some body on the solar system other than the Earth, right? So that's sort of representing our next step in our human exploration as we're going out into the universe right? Are we alone? This is a question that we've been asking forever and ever and ever. Are we the only species that can talk to one another? So far, the answer seems to be we haven't found it yet. But we do now know that there are many, many places in the universe. Uh, just within our Milky Way galaxy, we've already discovered thousands of planets outside of the solar system, many of them quite similar to our Earth, both in composition and structure and size, as well as in their locations in their respective solar system. So who knows, right? Life could well be common out in the universe, but it is also very likely that life just like us, with our own biological and chemical processes, that kind of life 
could be rare. Or we might even be, in that respect, unique in the universe. That's kind of cool, right? So what is the future of the universe? I'll wrap up these last few minutes about this talk, talking about that. The universe itself is aging, right? Right now it's 13.8 plus or minus 0.1 billion years old. That's very, very old compared to us. But there's a lot of history left. Uh, the universe is going to move forward. Our Earth eventually will be, shall I use the word, destroyed by the sun in about five billion more years. The sun is going to change. It's going to age itself in such a way that it will reach a stage of its existence, its life, if you will, uh, such that it will bombard the earth with so much heat and so much radiation that the surface of the earth will no longer be able to support life as we know it. And indeed, the structure of the earth itself may simply be burnt away. Meanwhile, about that same time, our Milky Way galaxy is going to die, is going to be destroyed again about 5 billion years from now, because we are following and going to hit the Andromeda galaxy, another agglomeration of hundreds of billions of stars and all kinds of other kinds of matter. And so as that happens, we crash into one another, we form a new galaxy. But then time goes on even further. You have to wait another trillion years, maybe another quadrillion years. Eventually, all the stars that we know of in the universe will stop shining. They will all have aged and turned into other things that are no longer stars. They will have died. Their life cycles will have changed. And then after that, it looks like, although we're not quite certain yet, that all the matter in the universe, all those atoms and molecules that have been formed since the beginning of time, all that stuff that was formed in the first 10 minutes of the Big Bang, after the Big Bang, excuse me, um, that's all going to disappear. It's all be poof, disintegrating, all right, going away and turning into just random particles of subatomic size and decreasing energies until at some point, even black holes, the most resilient, the longest lived large object in the universe, even they will dissolve. Their energy will dissipate out into the universe. And that will probably happen somewhere around a Google years from now. Not the search engine, but the number, G-O-O-G-O-L, one with a hundred zeros after it, right? So right now, the universe is only one with about 10 zeros after it. We got a way, way, way long time left to go. In fact, the universe right now is only a billionth of 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 the age it will be when the last black holes dissolve. So we got a long way to go. A lot of stuff happening. But yes, even the universe itself is going to die, right? Is that bad? Well, let me just focus on the future of humanity, right? I myself have great optimism for the future of humanity. Yes, we have done some things, right? And some of those things are challenging to us. But others of those things have been great, right? Thanks to science and technology, we have cured disease. 
We've increased the quality of life for most of our species. We've enjoyed that first taste of cosmic exploration. But sadly, our technology can also cause harm. We've caused harm to the ecosystem. We've caused risk to all life on Earth using all the environmental things that we have done and can still do, and also the technology that has been turned to weaponry and bomb fighting and things like that. These are things that we can work on. But we human beings, if we value that consideration of the collective good as well as the individual good, so far, the track record suggests that we're going to be able to continue to expand and do well for a long, long time to come. As long as we're aware of that and how that all works, I think we're going to be okay. So the end of time, when the universe is all done, what do we have to show for ourselves? What does it mean when the universe is done, right? At the end of time, you could still count seconds, I suppose, but what's going to change? We've reached a point now where we think the universe is going to reach a state where it just doesn't change anymore. Is that the end or is that the beginning? Is that something where you wind up being able to launch something new? Is that the sort of starting point for what might be something that might be considered in a future universe as what its Big Bang would be or was or generated, right? These are questions we do not know. And it's fun to speculate and fun to think about. Uh, as I was telling Anthony earlier, don't worry, even though the universe might end and the time that we understand might end, don't change your retirement plans. Our human existences are still of value and worth thinking about and enjoying, right? Thinking about these things in the universe, I don't know, how should we say this? Uh, it won't change the price of bread today, right? You go to the store, you know something about the universe is not going to make any difference, but it can change the course of civilization tomorrow. Our understanding of the universe two generations ago, which seemed completely useless to us today, is in every facet of our lives. So who knows what will come from this thinking about the unusual universe, the things that we have to think about, about everything. And in the last 60 seconds here that we talk, let me just mention that, you know, there are a couple other general thoughts that a study of the universe and study of the history of time makes us think about. Um, first of all, is the idea that I think this learning, this study is very liberating. Think about it. Um, we don't have to worry. Uh, we could have the crappiest day in the world. And yet we will still not affect the universe all that much. It's no big deal. Does that make sense? So um, don't worry about it, right? By knowing how the universe works, this gives us a great joy. Uh, to be able to sense, just as a, a, a child is first stepping out of the crib into a big house or out of the home into the big world, right? This is where we are, the opportunity to enjoy and to think about all that wonderful freedom of the universe that it can provide to us. And then the last thing, studying the universe gives us a sense of validation. Our existences Right. Sometimes we like, oh, the universe is so big. The world is so complicated, whatever. This stuff is like, you know, what what meaning 
does our existence have? What, what's the point of life, right? Well, it turns out that we, as you can see from the history of the universe, are as significant and as ordinary as every star in the sky, right? We are as cosmic and as mundane as every galaxy in the universe. We may live a very short time compared to the stars, but we live a long time compared to the bacteria that inhabit our bodies, right? We uh, may seem small in size and scale uh, to compared to say the earth or the solar system. That's true. But we, just like the earth, just like the solar system, we are born, we grow, we get older, we might reproduce, and we die. So we are as significant. We are part of the universe, and it is part of us. So what we do has meaning. When we believe in something and we want to do things, that is as important as any star that explodes or any black hole that collides or any starship that may someday set foot on some other planet. And so with that, I want to thank you all for the conversation that we've had so far. It's kind of been one way, so I really hope that you all give me some more questions so we can talk about these things. But the idea of the history of the universe, right? We have a lot more to go, but it is a great thing to think about. It's a lot of fun, and it's been a pleasure to share this all with you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to take any questions and talk with you more about the things you want to talk about when it comes to the universe. But before we uh, take questions to the audience, uh, just a few from myself. Um, how long did this entire process uh, take for you to, you know, create this book? Ah, well, uh, I believe I signed the contract just a short period of time before the pandemic lockdowns began. Uh, so about 2020 was when we first said uh, with the with the uh, the publishers say, hey, let's write a book about the history of the universe. So we've been working about it a little bit ahead of time, sort of planned out the concepts. And then just when the timing of writing was beginning, we were all dealing with something that we had never dealt with before in our lives. Uh, so eventually it took two years uh, for it to see print. So in April of 2022, I believe was when it came out into the market, but uh, we had produced it and worked on it. I'd say the total amount of time had there not been a pandemic might've been about a year, but instead it turned out to be two years, but you know what? Universe is still around. We got a long time. That's kind of how it all worked out. Uh, did this extra time actually allow you to, you know, put more things into the book or, you know? It most it... certainly did. Yes, absolutely. We got lucky that way, right? Uh, you saw that um, uh, in that one spread, we talked about uh, Mars, right? And Perseverance rover uh, landing on Mars using that sky crane technology. That happened in early 2021. Had we followed the original production, we might not have been able to have included whether or not that particular mission would have been successful or not. But fortunately, because we had that somewhat uh, unfortunate delay, we were able to make a little bit of lemonade out of that lemon by being able to add some of the cool stuff that had been discovered just recently. I means it brings up the point that astronomy and science in general is not this sort of uh, dead stuff that uh, old people wearing white lab coats have 
put into a textbook that you can just memorize and regurgitate and then forget, right? Science is living. It's alive. It continues to grow in knowledge and in interest and curiosity. It's super cool stuff. Thank you. Uh, let's see. We have a couple of questions. Um, a Ben Ratner is just making a little uh, joke here. <laughs> uh, they recently watched uh, Avatar, and you know they hope that uh, the next one comes out before the universe ends. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, in, in ter- to segue in, um, I mean, in terms of space, yeah, uh, it, it's become very popular recently. Uh, it, you know, in the news, uh, yes, uh, um, Jeff Bezos and his rocket, and oh yeah, SpaceX, right? Elon Musk shooting up rockets. You know, folks yes, being able to take rides into space for. I don't know, either either for favors or exorbitant amount of money, but I mean, um, it's been in the news. Uh, the next trip to Mar- uh, the moon slightly yes. delayed, right? In, in yes. Places, right? But, the, the Artemis mission was slightly delayed. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, and in popular culture, you know, it, you, know you have uh, Gravity, the director, uh, 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 he, he won recently. Um, yeah. And you have uh, The Martian. Right? Yes. A popular book. And then you have like Interstellar, right? And yes. Those, those type of films, you know, sort of grasp people's imaginations, right? And then, you know, they either they think about getting into sciences or, you know, you know, get fascinated with this particular topic that's, you know, very vast. Yes. Then, I mean, your, your, your book sort of makes it, you know, very simple to follow along. Well, I hope folks buy, purchase the book later on, right? <laughs> and, and you know, with, with, with your, you know, colorful pictures and stuff like that. You know, not not just full of like chock full of words. You know, making it confusing for folks. I mean, it's easily to digest. But uh, how do you feel about you know popular culture's usage of you know space and science in order to you know get people interested in this particular topic? I love it. I think it's wonderful. Um, I have been lucky to be at the New York Comic Con as a panelist a number of times over the years. In fact, I'm going to go up there uh, in two weeks uh, when your Comic-Con comes back to, to New York. And I have loved comic books and science fiction, uh, television and movies and books and things like that forever, my whole life. I too have been inspired by these things. And I am always very happy when people stretch their imaginations and imagine these things. There's been some excellent science fiction written recently um, in a lot of places where we ordinarily don't even get it, right? Um, but we have to uh, think more and broadly about the whole universe in different ways. And every time someone comes up with something, you know, whether it's scientifically correct or incorrect, as long as they're understanding that it's speculation and that they're thinking and they're trying and they're questing, uh, just trying new things or even just going up into space and enjoying seeing what's there, uh, that in itself is worthwhile and cool. It's like, uh, I really like using the analogy of little kids. The first time they're taking their first few steps, you know, they take a step and they fall on their butts, right? We don't say, ah, you suck. Don't, don't walk anymore. That's not worth it. You know, uh, you fell down. Uh, instead you say, yay, good job. You took a step. Take another, take another, you know, and before you know it, little kids running around and you have to, uh, make sure that all the, the countertops have round edges on them so that they don't whack their heads, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this is the kind of thing that we want. And, and every time the opportunity exists to bring more science into pop culture and pop culture into science, the more we strip away the barrier between the cool stuff that I'm doing for a living that I enjoy so much and the cool stuff that we all use and that we all appreciate whether or not we do it for a living because it's all part of our existence. 
So, so as far as the Avatar movie is concerned, uh, there is this thing in quantum mechanics called the uncertainty principle. And uh, I would hazard a guess, uh, Ben Ratner, that uh, uh, the sequel of Avatar is somewhere within that uncertain bound of when it's actually going to come out. Well, uh, Ben also followed with a comment. Uh, there was an episode of Futurama where the universe ended, and then there was another Big Bang and universe created, and it was identical to the other universe. And the only slight change was it was a few feet higher than the old one. And <laughs> is that actually possible? What a great question. Um, the idea of alternate universes or multiple universes is complex. It's been thought about for a long time, both in fiction and in mainstream science. Uh, and the answer is, if certain ways of multiverses or their creation uh, do hold in the universe, which we're not sure yet, but if they do hold, yes, you can indeed have a multiverse where everything is the same, except for one tiny little difference. Um, it's just that if you are thinking about multiverses, for example, with a many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is one mechanism where you can get multiverses, another is something called eternal inflation. A third is called uh, supersymmetry or string theory, M theory, where you can have multiple universes existing in a higher dimensional framework. These, if they allow the existence of multiverses, they can allow for the existence possibly of an infinite number or a nearly infinite number of universes. So if there is, in fact, an infinite number of universes, you can imagine that there's universes created where everyone's a few feet taller and then they're a few feet shorter or they are a few pounds heavier or a few pounds lighter. Uh, every possibility can exist. Uh, but do they exist? We do not know. And what's more important, even if they do exist, can we talk to them, right? Can we sort of go through portals uh, like America Chavez does in Doctor Strange, uh, Multiverse of Madness or something like that, right? The answer is at this moment, based on the physics that we understand, no, that's not happening. Nevertheless, it's fun to think about. Uh, Simon Christian asks, uh, well, hello, Professor Liu. Can you briefly explain the best theory conjured thus far regarding the universe before time zero? The second question is, uh, I have, where is the energy dissipated by black holes and the universe as a whole going? Uh, is it being lost due to space expanding? These are excellent questions. Uh, I will try to answer uh, question number one. And that is uh, the best explanation of what happened before time equals zero of the Big Bang. I'm afraid there are many best explanations right now because we don't have the experimental ability to confirm which one's better than the others. The best we can do is sort of look at the physics, the physical frameworks that we have at the moment and see which one seems to fit better into that framework without as much, uh, say, uh, additional information that we're forced to put into the theory to make it work. So in that sense, uh, the one that one thing that I like very much is the idea that we, as a four-dimensional space-time, right, length, width, height, and time, determining where we are uh, uh, or the size or the shape or the age of the universe, imagine a, a fifth dimension or a sixth or a ninth or a tenth or something like that, where you have a framework where you have other things that actually exist, but they don't follow the rules as we understand them of physics uh, 
in our universe because the time our universe has not yet been created. Time has not started. Time is T equals zero. There's no time, right? And so in that sense, you can uh, have a structure where you take two five-dimensional things and you tap them and touch at one spot. Uh, think about a, a so- two soap bubbles in the bathtub. As they come closer and closer to each other, if they touch and instead of popping, they come together, they form like a skin in between the two of them. Right, a three-dimensional bubble becomes a two-dimensional skin. Could a five-dimensional structure like a membrane uh, combined with another one to form a four-dimensional skin, which would be a space-time? That seems like the most fun idea that I like, but there are many others, and it's really hard to know what, what the universe was before time zero. Indeed, there's even mainstream uh, ideas about physics that suggest that the universe is cyclical. Uh, in other words, that maybe the universe before time zero was a universe uh, and it just kind of it got big and then it got small and now it's getting big again. And soon our universe will become small again and so on and so on on time scales that we humans could not can, can barely imagine. Right. So that's a possibility also. But we just don't have the technology yet to confirm one or the other. So, so that's just a thought process that I want to throw out there. So the second question is also good about the energy dissipating from black holes. Yes, the answer is it's going out into space. The original black hole, uh, when it absorbs or contains, when matter falls into a black hole, right? Uh, black holes, they don't suck, by the way. They, they, things have to fall into black holes. So black holes don't suck. Just keep that in mind in your life. Uh, but when stuff falls into black holes, they get larger. But instead of being like a, a conduit of matter coming out of the universe, you know, like, a, like a rip or something like that, the current understanding now over the past decade or two is now that the, it, it, the matter is more like stored. Uh, imagine like a water balloon or something like that, right? The, as more and more water goes in, you, you build up this water balloon, gets more and more bulbous, and the water stays in there. Uh, but it doesn't go away completely. And slowly over time, it comes back out of the balloon once you stop filling it, right? It kind of comes out. Uh, this is the sort of idea that black holes are now. They're repositories of energy, which has been converted from matter. And they don't actually go away. We can't access that material in there. But over very, very, very long periods of time, because I was saying 10 to the 100 years, perhaps, these black holes will have their energy dissipate ever so slowly from that small opening, that connection it has to our space-time. And so eventually all that material, all that energy will come back and it will be lost into the expanding universe of space. So all that energy will disappear eventually, but it won't go out of our universe. It just gets spread out into an ever larger universe in which we exist. William Sitt asks, uh, where does the space to which the Big Bang expanded into come from? Ah, well, William, um, the space that the Big Bang expanded into is the Big Bang itself. Uh, uh, the space, right, that the Big Bang was expanding into, there is no space that the Big Bang expanded into. The Big Bang is the expansion of the space itself. So the Big Bang created the space in which it exists. The expansion of the universe after the Big Bang occurred is the space in which we live. 
So there is no spot anywhere that the universe actually is, say, the center of more than any other spot. You are the center of the universe, and so am I, and so is Anthony, and so is everybody else in this room. Uh, so where does that space come from? That's a very interesting point, right? Some uh, theoretical structures of the universe and, and space-time suggest that, indeed, you can create space from nothing. You can have something. Uh, from nothing in that case, but really only space. Uh, uh, other ideas suggest you can get energy also from nothing. But this nothing is a, a qualified nothing because it's not truly nothing, nothing. But the idea that within the vacuum of space, there exists stuff at levels so undetectable by us that there is still energy to be had. Um, from a crude example, which I'll try to give you in, in our life experiences, when you look at an ice cube, all right, just sitting there, say, uh, on, on a table, like in a, in a bowl or something like that, it doesn't look like there's any energy in the ice cube. But as time goes on, if the ice cube melts, then the liquid ice, which is now we call it water, right, flows. And so energy appeared. It was just locked in. We couldn't see it. But when that symmetry of the ice cube was broken and it was melted into liquid water, new energy, which previously was hidden, became available. The idea that there might be additional hidden energy in the vacuum of space or from somewhere which we haven't detected yet, or that even space itself might be able to be generated from those kinds of uh, processes is something that's being very, very carefully studied on a theoretical level. I don't know the status of those studies yet, but it's a very interesting question. Okay. Uh, our next question is from Janet uh, X. Uh, they ask, how true do you think uh, is it that time is linear? Ah, it's a great question, Janet. Is time linear? At the moment, Based on what we think, yes. What does linear mean in this case, right? Does it mean that you can only go in one direction, right? Time can probably bend in four dimensions, right? So uh, you can go from the past to the present, but at different speeds. If you think of that, uh, depending on how fast you move through length or width or height, the space dimensions, you will move at a different rate through the time dimension, right? The question a lot of people ask that we all wonder is why do we only experience time from the past to the present to the future? Why can't we just go in a loop, go back in time and fix it and change it and things like that, right? Uh, there's a really good um, question. That is a really good question because we know that if we were able to experience time non-linearly, that is being able to go backwards in a loop and come back and things like that, then the laws of physics, the laws of nature that we understand right now wouldn't work the way that they do. The fact that they do work the way that they do strongly suggests that time is a one-directional thing. The mathematical construct of time that Albert Einstein put together in the general theory of relativity that he helped to develop that he uh, that he's credited with developing back in the 1914-1915 period of time uh, basically 
gives time a different um, coefficient, a, a different way of behaving compared to length, width, and height. And that's why we think mathematically, at least, it makes sense that time can only go from past to present to future. But there may be other ways, and there have been people trying to test the possibility what would happen if we could go in little loops. Would that violate all the laws of nature forever, right? One very interesting paper was published about a year ago uh, in Australia, where some researchers suggested that time might be built in such a way that it's a little bit more robust than that, that uh, like a flow of water, every once in a while, you can get a turbulent eddy where you can briefly go back in time. But eventually it all comes back to the same stream. All right. You might pick a little loop, but in the end, all of that causal stream is not violated. It's just a temporarily disturbed. Uh, we don't know any of the consequences of that. There's a lot of discussion of it. And of course, science fiction is always full of time travel, uh, whether it's correct or incorrect. Uh, and it's fun. It's fun to think about. It's kind of cool. Okay. Uh, Faith Lin asks, um, why light travels slowly in space? Um, as mentioned before, with light crossing the Milky Way. So yeah. Great question, Faith. Um, light, the speed of light. Why is the speed of light what it is? It is actually not clear. Uh, it's one of those constants in the universe that we know about. But why is the speed of light what it is? Why isn't it a little bit slower? Why isn't it a little bit faster? And, and why does it seem so constant? Um, that is a big mystery of modern physics. Hopefully, you know, someone, Faith, maybe you, uh, can help us figure out why it is that number. Uh, but we do know that the speed of light in vacuum is the fastest that anything in the universe can travel from one part of the universe to another, right? So it's fast. That means 186,282.3974 uh, miles per second or something like that. Um, it's so well measured, the speed of light is, that we actually measure length based on it, not measure it based on length, all right? So a few years ago, uh, international conventions of units of length defined the meter. So the meter is exactly the distance that light in space, in vacuum, would travel in a certain fraction of a second, right? One two hundred ninety-nine million seven hundred ninety-two thousand four hundred fifty-eighth of a second. Uh, kind of funny, but that's how it's kind of worked out. We really don't know why the speed of light is what it is, but it makes for a very interesting universe that all that time delay and look back and things like that. Um, it gives us fun stuff to think about. Uh, William has a follow up. Uh, he, he writes, the second is defined by some vibration of uh, cesium atom, which means motion. Can time be defined independently of space or motion? Great question. And the answer is, at the moment, we haven't figured out exactly how. Uh, we can theoretically think about a mathematical construct of time as a dimension of its own, right? Um, time is a dimension like length and width and height. And that's why we have this thing called the four-dimensional space-time. Uh, uh, so if you have that as a 
um, measure, then you could imagine a way where you eventually could build a construct of time without something physical. But none of us uh, are unphysical. Because we are all physical, we are all tied to time uh, based on matter and motion and energy. So um, I recommend that you take a look at the group uh, System International, uh, the, the group that's based in France that actually does weights and measures and things like that. I haven't looked at their website recently, but they always think about how you can measure time or how you can measure weight or mass or length or whatever in more creative and more useful ways. So uh, you could think of time as an astronomical phenomenon, right? How long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. But that varies every once in a while. The cesium atom measurement, uh, the way that the vibrations of, of cesium, that's kind of a cool way to do it. But does it have something that could be even better? Maybe. It's a good thought. It's a good thought. Janet asks a follow-up. Do you think dark matter is like a black hole that doesn't spin? Uh, ah, great question, Janet. Uh, dark matter is not the same thing as a black hole. Uh, a black hole is basically um, an object which has formed when luminous matter undergoes transformations to such an extent that the stuff inside the black hole is no longer visible from the outside. No way of detecting what's inside the black hole is known to modern physics. Uh, that has to do also with the speed of light as the limit, which was a great question asked earlier by Faith, uh, I think it was. Or um, maybe I can't remember if it was Faith or somebody else would ask that same question. Um, so the, the situation with that, right, um, is that dark matter is a whole different kind of matter entirely. So it's not a matter of whether or not it's dark. It's definitely dark inside the black hole. But the black hole was formed in such a way that did not depend on the existence of dark matter. So uh, is dark matter like a black hole that doesn't spin? You could think of the effect of a blob of dark matter like the effect on its environment that a black hole does that has that doesn't spin. But a black hole itself has an event horizon in which uh, a blob of dark matter doesn't necessarily have to have. So right up close to the black hole, things will behave very differently than right up close to a blob of dark matter, the same mass, unless somehow that blob of dark matter has become a black hole, which takes, as I said earlier, a bit of a physical process to be able to be achieved. Um, I have a follow-up question. Now, how did you get into the sciences? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'm a very lucky guy. Uh, when I was a kid, I really liked a lot of different things. And I love music. I love art. I love sports. I love science. I love literature, the humanities, writing, you know, creating. Everything was just so cool. And I was very, very fortunate that my parents uh, just let me explore. They figured that as long as I wasn't uh, getting into trouble, uh, I could sort of study what I wanted to study and think about what I wanted to think about. And even though, of course, there were aspirations from the family, you know, I should do this as a career, I should study that because it's the best thing for my family or for myself or, you know, whatever. Uh, they just sort of said, yeah, go do what you want to do. Have fun with it. Just, you know, come home by dinner and, and, and don't drink. 
<laughs> as a teenager or something like that. So they were very, very kind to me uh, and my parents. And then I had a lot of friends and I had a lot of teachers who also encouraged that. Said, you know, you're you're an odd duck, uh, but we'll let you decide what you want to do. And so very slowly over time, uh, I eventually developed a desire to major in college. Uh, I said, okay, I'm going to college and I want to study science. Uh, I'm still going to uh, do music and I'm still going to appreciate art and literature and, and poetry and all those wonderful things. I'm just going to do this as my major area of study. And so I concentrated my studies eventually on physical sciences and eventually on astronomy and astrophysics. And then I said, you know, I, I think I want to do this for a career. So I was fortunate enough to be able to apply to graduate school and then get in and then get in uh, and then do this. Uh, so that's sort of the whole process of where I am today. Uh, it, it was just a, a lucky uh, thing for me that I had so many people that were willing to let me explore and try different things and not be intimidated by that or this or being told, well, you shouldn't do that. That's that's not cool. Or you have to do this because that's what's necessary. That kind of freedom to learn and to think, despite my being widely unfocused, uh, got me to where I am today. Now, are there any particular um, space mission updates that uh, folks here should be aware about coming up soon or sort of like, you know, in, in the horizon, you know, are we heading to Mars soon? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to. Uh, the Artemis project, after many years, is finally getting off the ground, we hope, soon. Uh, Artemis, as you know, is the uh, Greek goddess of the moon. Uh, and so... Um, is the twin sister of Apollo, uh, which was the name of the missions that brought humans to the moon back in the 20th century. And so Artemis is eventually going to go up and do cool stuff. Hopefully in the next weeks or months, the first Artemis uh, vehicles will be launched into space in a precursor to humans setting foot back on the moon again. Uh, the there is a very interesting ground-based telescope system that's coming online in the next year or so. It's called the Vera Rubin Observatory. And if you ever see pictures of this, uh, the Vera Rubin Observatory is based in South America on a mountaintop high up uh, in the Andes Mountains. And it looks for all the world like a star base from Star Trek or, or Star Wars or something like that. It's a really futuristic, neat thing, but it is a ground-based telescope here on Earth that when it starts doing its scientific explorations in about late 2023, early 2024, it will gather essentially more data in one night than pretty much every other telescope on Earth and in space put together. So it's really a, a really neat new technology. It's 20 years in the making. Uh, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen there. And then, uh, as you know, the James Webb Space Telescope was just launched earlier this year. Um, it started sending back some of the newest pictures, uh, beautiful, beautiful data that's coming back. Uh, I'm very lucky to be involved in some research work that's uh, with that first cycle of uh, the observations from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's called Cosmos Webb. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have a good time with it. Uh, so there's lots of neat things happening. I'm very excited. Everyone just keep watching the news. And remember, on Monday, Jupiter is going to be lined up with the Earth and the Moon and the Sun. That in itself is pretty cool. Go take a look. When you're out there in the evening, you're going to see a bright dot. You're going to be like, hey, that looks like an airplane. But actually, it's not blinking. Why? Because it's Jupiter. 
Thanks for that tidbit. Um, that's all the questions we have. So I want to thank Professor Liu again for a fascinating presentation. Uh, we don't talk a lot about science here at the Research Institute, so it's great to have your talk. Um, this was wonderful. To purchase the Cosmos Explained, you can find the link on Professor Liu's talk page on our website. Uh, the book is available uh, for $25, and there's also an ebook option available. Uh, once you go to that website, you'll see the different uh, venues that have it available. And with that, uh, enjoy your weekend. Uh, Professor Liu, have a fun time at Comic-Con. I know that, uh, that the actor who plays Captain Pike uh, from the new Star Trek show, he'll be there. Uh, Doc, Brown, Doc, Doc Brown and uh, uh, Marty McFly will be there for a Back to the Future uh, anniversary. So please enjoy. And, I will. Yeah, everybody, please remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. And good night and have a fun weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody.